to that washing that declares us blameless and pure, that will cause us to stand without shame on that day. Amen. Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with trees. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whispers. Welcome to the world-famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I'm Denny Crane. Names on the door. (laughs) I'm just... I'm sad because I had to go searching through like three files to find Denny Crane. (laughs) (laughs) And I beat you to it. Uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) We are recording from Craig's kitchen table, soon to be sold to a Vietnamese family, I understand, but... uh, um, and we also have a the local Mo Blow and Go guy uh, tormenting Rufus, our executive producer. So it's it's this is sure to be a lively. <laughs> Rufus is looking at me. Look look look. look. He's, he's on checking me out. He's he's on he's on I'm, alert. Look, if I can't bite that gardener, I'm going to bite you. He is going. He, he is about to <laughs> unleash a fury on the gardener. And we have uh, on the line uh, our special guest, uh, Jim Nestigan, back from last week. Uh, Jim actually uh, agreed to come back. We were really amazed. And uh, we we have to add that, again, he's not been drinking. Well, we don't know that, but we assume he's not been drinking. But the the Skype line has a tendency sometimes to distort our guests. So please put the best construction on everything. Uh, Craig, you want to take care of just some some bookkeeping oh, yeah. here? A little before housekeeping we get here. Uh, Manly Doctors Hotline, Manly Durs 13, Manly Doctors 13, or 626-593-7713. I see the gardener over my shoulder. He's busy. And Rufus wants to take a bite out oh, of he his just, butt. He's a, yeah, he's, a, he's all... He says, the, I will bite your butt. That Corgi Rottweiler mix. It's a weird mix. Which, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that's forbidden in the book of Leviticus. I, 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 that should, that should <laughs> he, not... He, he is a walking and barking he abomination. Is, he's contrary to natural <laughs> law. I mean, just looking at him, whatever happened, I don't even want to visualize what happened oh, that okay. produced this dog. Okay, Corgi and a Rottweiler. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. never meant to happen. <laughs> That's like a Chihuahua Great Dane. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, MothershipGodWhispers.org, and you can email us at GodWhispers at gmail.com. Um, so, uh, Jim, welcome back to the God Whispers. Well, I have to tell you about some friends that I had on the coast, parishioners, down south of Bandon, Oregon. They had a dog that was half Pekingese and half Basset. Oh, no. The poor. The mother was the peak, and she had one pup, and it killed her. Oh wow! So you just, there's some there's something that I should not see nor hear here. That dog was the most horrible looking thing I ever saw in my whole life. Oh my goodness! <laughs> see, you know, each according to its kind, it says. So don't go, yeah, right, don't right. go, don't go messing around with that stuff. I mean, you know, in in oh, fact, that dog probably qualified as a genetically modified organism. Yeah, right. Some sort of freak for the yeah. university. Yeah, or the circus. <laughs> I'm not sure which, but the actually yeah, sometimes, right, exactly. some, sometimes you can't tell the difference between the university and a circus. So it it it, it, it oh, could no. be. But. <laughs> You're lucky, we man. <laughs> we're uh, we're uh, the 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 top the topic on the table. If if you choose to pick it up, or we can go somewhere else uh, with it, but. Uh, uh, but the topic on the table, you, pre- you presented a series of talks uh, at the Doxology Reunion. Uh, that's uh, Bev Yankee and Hal Senkbeil's uh, uh, continuing ed fest. program fest uh, in Kansas City recently. And I had the privilege of hearing uh, some of your talks, three out of four. 
And yeah. uh, the last one really struck me as as being uh, my 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 thought was that it was like fourth year pastoral theology the way it should have been. And uh, the topic was uh, dealing pastorally or the pastoral care of those suffering from addiction. And uh, I, don't, I don't think there's a pastor around listening to this. Oh, here comes the leaf blower again. We've got part two. Yeah, maybe not. We go. No, he's just revving it up oh. for the next house. No, he's, he's got to make noise on the way out. It's kind of like a signature with him. You know, <laughs> I'm <can't>. done. <laughs> but, but get, 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 do, you, do you have a check for me? Get, get, getting, getting, getting to the topic, the, the, um, this business of the pastoral care, the proper care of those suffering from addiction, and especially the Lutheran emphasis that we bring of uh, the dying and rising of the law and the gospel. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. The... Um one of the ways that I, you know, I'm not a pastoral care professor. I teach, I taught confessions all my life. Um, but you can't teach Lutheran theology without teaching pastoral care in some dimension. And and I have served a couple of parishes and, you know, done, been involved with... Um, I early on was persuaded of the importance of confession and absolution. And so I practiced it all my ministry and had the distinction at Luther Seminary of, in St. Paul of being the only one who actually heard confessions on a regular basis. So when you sit and listen to people confess for a few years, you, um, you learn some things about the human heart, and that's been my kind of entry to this topic. Um, some years ago, I read an absolutely fabulous book um, by Norman McLean, who um, he wrote uh, A River Runs Through. It's a great trout fishing book, but mm. he also wrote in his last years a book called Young Men and Fire, um, which is one of the greatest books, I think, um, of it was the New York Times book review made it book of the year, and the editor said, some of the sentences in this, this book are as fine and as any written in the English language. <laughs> it's, it's just an outstanding book. And um, from McLean, who was a literary critic at the University of Chicago, I learned a set of distinctions that I use um, listening to people unfold their stories. Um, the first term that he uses is... Um, uh, catastrophe. Um, in Young Men and Fire, the catastrophe is a uh, 1948 fire at Man Gulch in western Montana, north of Helena, that um, blew up and killed 13 out of 14 firefighters who had jumped in in parachutes. Um, and so the catastrophe was was, um, you know, the loss of all those men, the nonsensical eruption, the nature turning against itself and going wild. I mean, it was just chaos. And, you know, uh, the second term that he uses is um, a, a, a tragedy. Um, when you move from a catastrophe to a tragedy, you move from the original chaotic event to to um, something that's got a beginning and a middle and an end. You can you know you can say what was happening on that afternoon, and you can describe um, you know what happened in the middle of the of that fire, and then you can you can describe an end. You can say what the consequences were. So his goal, as he wrote that book, was to move of a catastrophe to a tragedy. And when you get that narrative move, then thirdly, um, you have, a, it becomes a story. It's lost the chaos. It's, it's uh, settled. The tragedy is, you know, is still there, but it's not as pointed. And now it's a story which you can relate and tell <clears throat> without, you know, intense emotional involvement. You just, it's it's resolved itself. Now, what I've done with this over the years, and this is what I originally did for the 
doxology people some years ago was to was to work out that you know when you listen to people when people come to talk to you as a pastor they bring a narrative and that narrative is uh, represents their effort um, to come to terms with their experience their whole life is enfolded in a narrative and so when people get acquainted they tell one another their narratives i was born so and so i was grew up here i went to high school there i graduated from college here i did this i was in the service so on and so forth and you know the stories unfold um when people come to a pastor um the narrative often begins with a catastrophe. Um, there's something that they haven't been able to resolve, something that they haven't been able to deal with, and that catastrophe is still there. Um, for instance, when I was a young pastor down on the coast of Oregon, um, a 39-year-old man in my parish died at his daughter's wedding. I was still in my surplus and cassock, which we wore in those days, and I was, I had, um, he was in my office smoking a cigarette, and his wife came, the father of the bride, he had had a bad, was having trouble with his back, standing in the receiving line, he came in and sat in my office, I gave him a back rub, in fact, and his wife came out the door, and um came in and after him she was mad at both of us and <laughs> he got he, he got he got up and went into the hallway and the next thing I knew he was she was screaming and he was on the floor in his death throes. I mean it was it was just awful. I mean it was I you know, I gave them mouth to mouth resuscitation for twenty minutes and finally the ambulance came and he, he was already dead what I took was as signs of life was agonal breathing and he he um they hauled him to the hospital and i stood and held a 19 year old girl absolutely ravishingly beautiful and right as a flower you know in her wedding dress that she just screamed in the death of her father i mean it was just horrid well that's a catastrophe you know and you, you know, the, these things happen to people. And you know, when they come and bring you a narrative, usually the catastrophe is right there. Sometimes you hear it having moved. Sometimes people will say, "Well, I mean, I can understand this, and I can understand that," and you'll hear it coalescing into a tragedy. And um, frankly, if it's a story, you might hear it, you know, over a drink, or you might hear it sitting at supper or at a pot smuck or someplace. But but when people tell you their stories, they're not interested in your help. Everything's resolved. Sometimes um, there are broken narratives. Um, there are narratives that are still so catastrophic that they can't emerge as tragedies. Or there are tragedies so profound that they'll never become a story. I mean, they just, there's too much self-loss in there. And when you deal with addicts, um, most of the time what you're dealing with is a broken narrative. Um, Somebody is trying, you know, I mean, they'll tell you a story that starts like this. Well, you know, I thought I could have a drink, and I could control it, and everything was fine. But then, you know, and then the, then it's a DUI, or it's a lost job, or it's a lost marriage, or it's a, you know, it's something catastrophic. And then the drinking emerges um, as a false gospel that addresses the catastrophe. It's the drinking, um, the breach is the, all over the place. And the, the the addiction functions with the narrative to as a false absolution, as a, you know, as a, as a um, premature self-indication, some kind of release. 
And then you get into problems where the the absolution, instead of being the end of the story, um, becomes just another occasion for the addiction. And that's the problem. So the, let me let me reflect on that a little bit. You got me. I, I took some some things down here because it it got me thinking. First of all, what what you're talking about really it's a kind of a hermeneutics. You know, the, this right. is this yeah. is a hermeneutics of of people's life, and and the way in yeah. which they try to bring some element of order out of chaos. This is this is really. Right. And and uh, and and so we're always going to be looking for order and ways to achieve it, or ways to make we say make sense, achieve closure. There's there's all this, all this right. language that we have, but what it really means is that that we're trying to bring some order out of chaos, and and only the gospel can actually do this. Uh, That's right. That only God can bring order out of chaos, and yet we look for other ways to to do that. Uh, we we you know, alternative gospels, other gods, the idols that all promise uh, to bring this into some sort of order, but indeed create more disorder. No, this is just fabulous. Uh, the Christ when Christ Jesus, what Christ Jesus does is he resolves the narrative in himself. Um, he joins us under the sign of the cross. We we meet him in self-loss. We meet him in the chaos, you know, in the tragic. Um, and we meet him there. He joins us there. He comes to us there. He enters there. And so he he takes our story. He begins to take our story up into his story at that point. You know, uh, we're, we're, he joins us under the cross, and as he, he joins us, then he, the end of his narrative becomes the end of our narrative. That is the resolution that we can't find in ourselves, that's not available to us in any other way, is granted. And when he grants it, he grants it under the sign of the absolution. He, he takes us takes our story up into his story in such a way that the two are joined hip to hunch. I mean, you know, his story is my story and mine is his. And now those stories were joined at the cross. They are joined under the sign of baptism. And so as they're joined at the cross, they're joined at the point of death. And as we share with him in a death like his, we share with him in the resurrection like his. And there's the end of the narrative. There's the resolution that the human heart cannot find in any other way. So every every shortcut out of that, you know, out of that crucifixion is an evasion. I mean, it's uh, last Sunday, my pastor was gone, so I administered the sacrament. And when I, when I had everything ready, I turned to the congregation and I said this, this um, this sacrament is for sinners. If you're not a sinner, we'd appreciate it if you'd go to the back of the room and wait until we're done. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a great no, point. Yeah. I want to I want to want you to expand on that point a little bit because because too often um, the people who are caught in chaos and the chaos of sin. Yeah. Have 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 basically excommunicated themselves. They've said, "I, I don't yeah. deserve to come here. I'm too great a sinner. I, I shouldn't be here." Yeah. And and they absent oh, themselves yeah. from the supper. And and that what what do you say to them? Oh no, that's just. I mean, boy, if there's a Lutheran question, this is it, huh? I mean, this is this is what we're good at. I mean, this is why God keeps Lutherans around. You know. I mean, we're. I mean, we know, we say in the small catechism, you know, I believe that I cannot believe this by my own understanding or strength, and that, of course, is what happens at the table. I am such a sinner that I don't qualify, and my sins are greater than Christ Jesus could ever accommodate. I have a very close friend who's dying now, and whose death has been underway for you know several months. And I have to call him almost every day and bear witness to him. I mean, I just have to say to him, say this to him, as great as your sins are, Christ is greater still. There is no point at which he's going to say, that's enough now, it's over, it's ended, you're done. 
Huh? What he's going to say is, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom I prepared for you before the world was made. I mean, there's, you know, you know and so when there are people who absent themselves from the sacrament because of the quality of their sins, <laughs> I always think it's fabulous. <laughs> If, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And and that's yeah. that's one of the things that we find in addiction is that people have control issues and they're trying to control everything yep. themselves. And it's much like confession and absolution. It's much like anything else in Christendom. In order to be deserving, we have to confess we don't deserve it and, and come as empty-handed beggars. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exact. Those are the passages, you know. I mean, I got the whole, you know, I got the whole range of those passages that are that are sacred pearls, you know, that you give to people in these circumstances. You know, God is greater than your heart. I mean, He's, you know, you haven't run out of them yet. You can't outsin Him. He's, you know, His grace covers you. We, I mean, we just, you, I mean, it's a lot of fun. You can keep. Here's where the good Lord's got use for playfulness and for, you know. <laughs> Not taking it too seriously. I mean, you know, I call that guy up and I say, "Have you got a big one for me today?" <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking for something a little salacious. Let's see what we can come up with. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's. I mean, that's. I mean, it's fun because, of course, the old Adam wants to convince us, above all, that our sins are greater than Christ Jesus could ever accommodate. <laughs> well, you know the the other you thing, and you you come from you come from the Norwegian background. Uh, I have at least I, I like claim to part German. Uh, Denofri is just all Italian. There's not much we can do Some about Irish him. In there. Yeah, well, see that. Speaking of yeah. addictions, but but crazy uh, drunk. That's yeah, me. yeah, that's crazy right. Drunk, mean, but 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 I, I'm what I'm wondering about is pietism in all of this because because this yeah. this mm-hmm. notion that that one has to demonstrate one's repentance in order to kind of win your way back to the table uh, yeah. to me is, is completely backward because if, if you if you don't have the means of grace at your disposal how on earth are, are, is there ever going to be any order in in the chaos of your life right right exactly this is pietism is just one more form of unbelief <laughs> I mean, you know, well you know you just it's pious unbelief, but it's unbelief because you know the. I convince myself that I have to work on myself to such a degree that Christ Jesus can accept my work. Well, that's blasphemy. You know, I mean that that somehow. Well, it's like the text for Sunday. You know, uh, the Psalm for Sunday, Psalm fifty. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we get ourselves all whomped up over sacrifice, and the good Lord looks at us and says, I am the Lord your God. I don't need your help. <laughs> you think I'm hungry? <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, this is, this is just another occasion for sin to work on myself like this. Foolishness. I think it's Robert Capon who makes much of of the the way the old Adam. Uh, he doesn't use that term, but it's kind of a Lutheran reading it. Uh, it engages in in transaction with God. We we want to cut a deal, and yeah, and, exactly. and so we're oh, going yeah. to we're we're gonna we're gonna lay out we're gonna obligate God by showing him how hard we're working at improving ourselves, yeah. and then then he's obligated to accept us because we're trying really hard. I mean, there's there's an Episcopalian who knows that he's by nature sinful and unclean, and I just love him. <laughs> I mean, he's more fun. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the good Lord should make more Episcopalians like that. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. He's he's you more know, Lutheran he, than a lot of Lutherans I've read. Oh, it's exactly true. That's exactly <laughs> true. The least, the lost, you know, I mean, he's just great. And you get them on these texts, you know, that are so difficult from the middle of Luke, you know, all these chapters of Luke that are coming up in the lecture, you know. He just comes into his own. Boy, do I ever like him. Yeah, I think he gets a better hearing amongst Lutherans than he actually gets amongst uh, uh, his fellow Episcopalians. I think he's pretty much uh, yeah. the... the uh, well, what they want, what the Episcopalians want is more merit word. <laughs> they, sorry, they want what? 
They want more of Mark Borg. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are some of the Hebrew terms that you, you were using <laughs> that describe him pretty well. <laughs> do, do, we, do, do we have to put up a homeschooler alert before we, 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 yeah, we approach? Yeah, we better put up a homeschooler alert. <laughs> we'll, that's exactly right. So, okay. so. I well, now the ELCA, of course, thinks Mark Borg is their, um, their angel of mercy. So. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's the one. He's going to lead them to the promised land. Says you barely get, you barely get, get bucked by one horse when you've got your foot in the stirrup of another. <laughs> well, what about what about uh, the the twelve step groups and and AA and and that that well, how does how does that f- factor into the the whole business of of bringing? Yeah, well, orders? here's 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 the difference. Um. Alcoholism is a form of inappropriate self-loss. Um, and it's important to say that because there is an appropriate form of self-loss, and that is faith. Um, in inappropriate self-loss, you lose yourself to something like alcohol or gambling. I mean, we live we live just a few miles from one of the Indian casinos in western Western Oregon, and the guys that work over there tell me stories of these old ladies that they drive in in buses and sit in front of um, slot machines and diapers, um, which they routinely fill, but they never leave the machines because they're convinced that if they, you know, go to clean themselves up, somebody will sit down at their machine and win their money. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 addictive behavior. You know, that's just nuts. So it's inappropriate self-loss because something over which you should have control, Article 18 of the Oxford Confession, you know, something something that you should be able to control has, has um, lost that standing and taken control of you. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, whatever, sex, you know, <laughs> I heard a great story from one of my friends out east, he's he was having a healing service, and this attractive young woman, the procedure was that people would come up and confide their malady and then kneel, um, and he would um, pronounce words of healing. So this very attractive young woman came up and confided in him, whispering that she was sexually addicted. And so she knelt and he put his hands on her head, and he prayed words of healing. And she stood up and looked at him and said, was that as good for you as it was for me? <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> well, uh, in, 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 in inappropriate self-loss, we get caught up in something that we should control but can't any longer. Um, in faith, You finish your sentence. <laughs> it's just okay. ba- it's just ba- it's just background music for the first half. <laughs> okay, in faith, in faith, we lose ourselves appropriately. That is, he who seeks his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. There you go. Now we get taken up in Christ Jesus, and He becomes the subject of our verbs. And now we're free. And now so, we'll take. Oh, now we'll take that break. Now now we're free for a break. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back after this. Okay, great.
I'm praying for rain in California So the grapes can grow and they can make more wine And I'm sitting in a honky in Chicago With a broken heart and a woman on my mind I match the man behind the bar For the jukebox And the music takes me back to Tennessee Welcome back to the God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. I'm Bill Swirla. And we have Jim Nestingen online here. Little old wine drinker me. <laughs> Little Dean Martin. <laughs> I thought I thought since we're talking about addiction, that would be a, a nice yeah, intro. Yeah, you know, that it, it sort of reminds me. We were on vacation <laughs> last week and, and uh, hanging out at restaurants. Drinking restaurant. a lot of wine. Yes, we were. Yes. A lot of wine tasting. And and uh, But, you know, it occurs to me that, that there's an awful lot of confession and absolution, or at least a form of it, that goes on at bars. Yes. Oh, yeah. For yeah. Sure. I, I wrote a paper in seminary called... Uh, uh, Drinks, shrinks, or absolution. Hey, that's exactly right. That, that was we, 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 in our Bible class, we were talking about confession and absolution, especially the private form of it. And I, I just asked the class, I said, where, where do people turn to hear uh, some kind of absolution? And the first thing that came to their mind was, was therapists. Right. And, and then secondly, bartenders and, and cab drivers. Yep. For, and, for the women, it's probably the beautician. Uh, yeah, your, your hairstylist. Well, for yeah, that's right. For some men too, I you know it just all all depends. But but uh, um, any place there's somebody who is trustworthy working with you in a situation where they're not a lot of the ears, those people will hear confession. You can just bet on. Well, I think also strangers are more likely to you. People are more likely to open up to strangers who don't have. Oh yeah. You know, there, there's no ability for them to follow you around with your sins and, and club you with them. Yep. You, you leave them yep. there at the bar. This is why I never wear clerics on an airplane. I mean, <laughs> Me too. I, 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 I swore off that a long time ago, I'll tell you, boy. You, you get on, wear clerics on an airplane, the first turbulence, and your confessional is open, and you'll work the rest of the flight. <laughs> you, you and I, you and I are, are are cut out of the same cloth. There, I, I gave that up years ago for the very same reason. I, I have, I, I'm like a bus that says "not in service." You know, it's yeah, all right. There you go. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm pouring a couple of. Uh, you maybe. They always tell this story, but I love to tell it too. I was, I was in the old days, you know, when I was still welcome in the ELCA. That was shortly after the merger. I was asked to do the Bible studies at the at the uh, churchwide assembly down in Orlando, and I, they taped it and they sent tapes all over everywhere. And I mean, I was number one on the hit parade there for a little while, Virgin Queen, you know, the whole business. And so I got invitations to preach all over everywhere. And one time I was down in Savannah, Georgia, of all places, and my wife Carolyn was with me, and <clears throat> I preached, and they took us to the plane in Savannah, and we flew to Charlotte, and <clears throat> I didn't get a chance to change my shirt in Savannah, so when we got to Charlotte, I went hustling into the men's room and put on a sports shirt, and I got on the plane. And uh, Carolyn and I were separated. We hadn't bought seats in time to sit together. And so I was, you know, I'm fairly substantial in girth. And, of course, people my size invariably get set in the middle seats with somebody bigger on one side or the other. <laughs> and so I got, I, I, I said to my wife, I, I sat in there like the head of a pimple. I mean, I, was, <laughs> I mean, there were, there was, Pressure all around. <laughs> it's going to be a blowout someplace. Today. But this, guy, this great big guy sitting next to me turns to me and he says, you're a pastor. I said, I am. He said, 
mind if we talk? <laughs> no, I mean, you don't have an alternative in the world at that point. And I said, of course, I'll be glad to talk to you. And he said, he started them and um, he started making confession. He was a Vietnam vet and he'd been sitting on some stuff ever since. This was in the early 90s, I suppose, mid-90s maybe. And he had been sitting on it for 20 years, 25 years. And and it was festering, you know. And the, so the more he confessed, the more he confessed. I mean, he just, pretty soon it was just pouring in there, you know. I mean, it was just one blame thing after another. And finally, he started to repeat himself. We were in a landing pattern over Minneapolis, St. Paul, on and I said to him, have you confessed the sins that are troubling you? He said, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize I was confessing. And I said, you know, you've been confessing all the way from Charlotte, and uh, I'm a pastor of the church as one, uh, in the service of Christ Jesus. I have an obligation to you. And I stood up and I put my hand on his head and the flight attendant just panicked and she comes running back no 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 what was it <laughs> put, my, put my hand on his head and I said in the name of Jesus Christ I forgive you all your sins well he split like a melon I mean he just I mean I sat beside him and held him while he wept and he just wept and wept and wept you know the whole plane had emptied out and he was still trying to find his composure you know and we we got up and got off the plane. He said to me, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my whole life. How do, how can you be so sure? I said, Christ Jesus commanded me to tell you that. You were sent to me by him to hear this. And I said it again. And he said, can you say that anytime you want? I said, I can say it anytime you want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just want to know one thing. I said, how, how did you know I was a pastor? He said, well, I saw you changing your shirt in the men's room in Charlotte. <laughs> oh, I said, how did you know I was a Lutheran? He said, I saw you with that blonde, and I knew you were no priest. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the two de- dead giveaways of a Lutheran minister, he's changing out his uh, clerical he, shirt in the bathroom, and he's got a hot blonde on his arms. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big <think back. laughs> My, so my wife I, always you know, likes to hold I mean, my hand. That guy, came, that guy used to come to see me almost, you know, I mean, he was like clockwork. I mean, he was just, he was Christ Jesus fed him, you know, um, and he just, I mean, he had to hear that word. And so I came to love him. I mean, he was just fabulous. You know? <laughs> that, that's that, that's the that's the tell tell me the joke again of of faith you know that that that's to him that's yeah. and yeah. to to faith that's the best that's the best good news you can possibly hear and it's so good news oh, yeah. you just want to hear it over and over and over again so so tell me that oh, yeah. punchline me one up. more time oh, yeah. I forgive oh, yeah. you so just say it just say it I just need to hear it again yep. can you say it again that's it yeah that's what this is it gets I mean that's faith itself I mean he knew. He knew his Redeemer, and he knew his sins belonged to Christ Jesus now. But every once in a while, he just need a little reassurance. <laughs> so, and he knew where he could get it. <laughs> and, that, and that's that's the point, really. He's got to go to the guy that was changing out his shirt with a hot blonde on his arm. There, that's that's exact. What? Um, so, so put yourself in the position of a of a pastor, young or old, doesn't really matter. But you know, pastor in his study, and and uh, in walks one of his parishioners, maybe a prominent one, uh, and begins to talk uh, the story that you describe. Uh, when it becomes very clear that that uh, he uh, he or she um, has has a problem either with drinking, with drugs, or with something else, and and well, where do you begin there? What 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 what? Where does the conversation go for a pastor? Well, first of all, um, I mean the best thing a pastor can do in any congregation is make friends with all the AA people. I mean, I mean, uh, alcoholics in recovery are the best people in the community to work with because you've you got a fighting chance that they're honest, as honest as sinners ever get, you know. So, so, um, and you keep yourself a stable of people that you can trust um, who work with alcoholism. 
Um, it's a disease. It's a very sophisticated disease. As one of my drinking friends used to say, um, the trouble with alcohol is that it's patient. And so, you know, it requires um, extraordinary amounts of sophistication to deal with it. And a pastor uh, generally needs help from somebody who knows what they're doing. So, so I mean, for instance, in our congregation, the president of the congregation is uh, in recovery, and he's... I mean, he's about as good as it gets. You know, he told me once that he was, when he was drinking, he was he had he specialized in throwing up, and he was he had thrown up, and he was laying in his own emesis on the floor of the of the toilet, looking up at the bottom of the toilet, and he said, "You know, my wife never cleans this very well." <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, you just you just gotta love a guy like this. Who told you a story like that? You know, so when you find people like that, where you've got resources, and then and and they will help. I mean, when you start hearing stories like this um, from us, particularly from you know people in leadership in the congregation, from people who are prominent in the congregation, the first thing you got to do is get somebody who knows what they're doing. Because if you make a mistake there, it's likely to cost you big. So, you know, I would say, um, you know, keep somebody like that around. Usually, I mean, I've never observed a congregation that didn't have, I mean, Lutherans attract alcoholics, among other things, because we still say the public absolution. And I know a lot of alcoholics um, who go to Lutheran parishes because the absolution is there. You know, so so you um, there things like that where you can get traction, you know, where you can um, get your wheels down enough so that you can get started, and then of course you're going to be in for a ride because this um, oftentimes takes a long time. I remember when I was in the cities, I had a friend. Who was, uh, you know, we uh, we go over to his house to have a glass of wine, and pretty soon I noticed that it was, you know, I'd be finishing with the first one, and he'd already be done with the second, looking for a third. And pretty soon I found out that there was wine in his office. I mean, he was uh, when we finally caught up with him, he was drinking two bottles a day, mm. and we, you know, it, uh, we, I. I went with his wife to the Johnson Institute in Minneapolis. They're they're the best people in the world at confrontation. Um, every time I tried to talk to him about it, he said the same thing. Yeah, you enjoyed a glass of wine with me, didn't you? <laughs> and he'd laugh and say, "Want another one?" You know, I mean, it was. I mean, he was just mocking. And his, of course, his wife couldn't get to him for love or money. You know, so. So we went to the Johnson Institute, and they arranged the confrontation. It's one of the most sophisticated things I ever saw in my whole life. They they started um, with the people in the group that were the furthest out from him emotionally, the people who were friends but not family, you know. And so I went first. I was one, you know, I was a long-term friend, but I wasn't, you know, no, there was no blood involved, and so. So I started, and I did what I was told. I named his drinking, and I named the consequences for me. And, of course, it was like a mosquito landing on an arm. He swatted me off that fast, and I was gone. You know, I was out of the game. But uh, his, then one of his sons went, and then one of his daughters, and his wife went, and then his oldest daughter um and she was uh, in the confrontation, was sitting holding her daughter on her lap. And, I mean, that woman, was, she was gorgeous for one thing, and she was smart as a whip. I mean, she had a Ph.D. She was really sophisticated, you know, and, uh, you know, rising in the business community in the Twin Cities. I mean, she... She named his drinking, and she named its, its consequences for her, and that stopped him. I mean, he that was not easy for him. He was humiliated, you know. And <laughs> I'll never forget this in my whole life. It was so gorgeous. 
uh, we thought it was all over, and the woman started to stand up. And when she started to stand up, her daughter stood right in front of her, and she started towards him, and she said, Grandpa. And he snapped like he just, I mean, he just broke. And he started weeping, and he said, when can I start treatment? When can I start treatment? When are you going to free me from this stuff, you know? I mean, we were in business. Well, we would have never gotten anywhere on our own, you know. But that little girl saved her grandpa's life. Mm. And she she saved it because she was in a context where just calling him by name, you know, grandpa was the gospel of redemption, you know. Gee, that was fabulous. So, so and, and that I, was... I always, that was all orchestrated by by uh, by this this uh, this clinic or this group. They 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 put this no, together. John, the Johnson Institute. Yes, <clears throat> the little girl was not orchestrated. Well, not I mean orchestrated in the sense, but they got everybody together in one room. Oh, they set the whole thing up. They yeah, whole, and they got him in the room too, which sometimes is a real achievement because there's. I mean, you know the old joke, when is an alcoholic lying? When his lips are moving. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, that's right. So now, the, whole, the, whole, the whole disease functions in incredible levels of self-deceit. I, I, I like the and, way that you talk about people who are in, recru- in recovery and treatment, uh, how they're honest about their sin. And I think that that's part of what you're, you're driving at here is that you, you have to come clean. You have to confess. I've got a problem here, and it's bigger than me. I, yeah. I can't. I can't do oh, this yeah. on my own. And and it's it's oh, we're we're all addicts. We're we're all addicted to our sin. Oh yeah. Oh geez, we do with our like. You know, I don't like John Calvin, but he said this one right that our hearts are idol factories. Mm. I mean, we just we barely get finished with one idol when we're busy assembling another one. <laughs> Calvin and, Calvin you know, said this. That's yeah, Calvin says it. Oh, bummer. He, he also I, said I, that you weren't drunk unless you vomit the next day. So <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I've always attributed that to Luther. The vomiting? Or no, the not idol. the vomiting. Oh, no. the, the, the idol the idol factory. I, 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 I've always attributed that quote to Luther, that our hearts are an idol factory. That's oh, Cal- that was Calvin. Oh. I mean, this is proof that the rain falls on the just and the unjust light. <laughs> Calvin wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice, nice logic there, Craig. I really appreciate that. That's wow. Oh well, that's a. I, I'm partially bummed out. I'm happy for Calvin, but I'm bummed out for me. I I, I was quoting Luther on that one. Man, I hate footnotes. You know, I just I would, hate I would footnotes. Never try to make that habit. I would just you know just hope that there's not a church historian in your congregation who's going to catch you and ask for your footnotes. There you, <laughs> there you go. There, there you go. I, uh, I was told by a Calvinist pastor also that Calvin once said that if you come across a homosexual, cross the street and throw the piece, the closest piece of dung you can at him. So that's a how, Cal- a Calvinist that's how said Calvin, that. Calvin apparently dealt with Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, that, that's an interesting topic. It's, it's kind of side on. <laughs> And it's not an addiction thing so much, but but uh, I'm I'm interested in I'd I'd like to hear your take on the the whole homosexual thing, for lack of a better term, uh, that's that's really become I, I think almost a preoccupation in our churches today. Uh, and you know yeah. you're you're coming out of sort of the ELCA and the ELCA's perspective. We're in the LCMS. Um, I, I've I've said publicly and at least semi-publicly that I think both church bodies have failed um, in in addressing this issue from a properly Lutheran law and gospel perspective. But That's exactly I, right. I'm curious about your thinking just on on this whole area of of uh, homosexuality and and that. What, what do you yeah. what are you thinking these well, I was, days? I was one of the people who was. Um, you know, outspokenly opposed to um, ordaining practicing homosexuals. And that was, um, you know, I believe quite strongly that the church is called to minister to um, sinners of all kinds and, uh, you know, not make distinctions at that point. But uh, calling somebody who's... um, uh, Involved in that level of of sexual athleticism, um, 
is um, that's extraordinarily that's uh, that's very dangerous business, and and the church is I fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it, and now I've pretty much been ushered out of the ELCA. I belong to the North American Lutheran Church, and I am very happy about it. Um, I'm, you know, the ELCA was a crucifixion in its own right for a lot of us who are more conservative. I mean, the, the, after this passed in 2009, the presiding bishop, Mark Hansen, was quoted at a meeting in his office complaining that the conservatives weren't leaving fast enough. So mm. <laughs> you can guess how, I mean, I'm about as welcome there as uh, syphilis infection, you know, so <laughs> glad to be gone. Well, they have a shot for that, <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, one, the way, what I've been thinking it is is that uh, on the, just look at it from the, the two sides, if you will, the, the ELCA, the LCMS, or the conservative Lutherans. Um, oh. Obviously, from the ELCA side, at least from my perspective, the, we, they've driven into the ditch of just simply raw antinomianism. They've just given up on that. That's it's just it's not an issue. It's not a sin. In fact, it's something to be celebrated. Let's all just have a party. Um, but but in an equal in an equal and opposite reaction, it seems. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but but it seems that conservative confessional uh, Lutheranism has has driven into a, a strange kind of ditch too, uh, where it. If, if it's not antinomianism, it, it's it's really kind of a, a legalism or a pietism that yeah. says un, yeah. unless you straighten up, the gospel is not for you. Uh, un, unless unless yeah. you repent, yeah. and repent means you stop desiring that which you desire. Uh, then then you're you're going to continue to hear the law, uh, you know, until you yeah. you you present some evidence that that uh, you're making progress in the right direction. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story from the Norwegian side. When um, when Robert Price left Fort Wayne, um, I mean that's a story in itself. Of course, he moved back to a suburb of of Minneapolis, and he called me up and uh, wanted to come over to my office for a visit. So I said, "You're more than welcome here. Come on over." And we so he came over one Friday afternoon, and it was really something. Um, because uh, we both knew what would happen if anybody saw him on campus. I mean, most a lot of people wouldn't know him, but uh, you know, I mean, he would inspire fear in all kinds of people. <laughs> it was really fun. Yeah, he, he, he did slowly. among he did among us too, I think. <laughs> yeah, he came walking into my office and he looked over my books and then he turns to me and he says, "Well, Jim, I can tell you what's wrong with the Missouri Senate." It's gone Calvinist. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Calvinist. I, I, just, I just about fell off. I mean, I just about fainted. I mean, first of all, I laughed, and then I thought, what the heck am I laughing at? And, you know, it was the legalism that he was picking up, you know. I mean, the solution to antinomianism is not legalism. The solution to antinomianism is the proper distinction of law and gospel. And when when legalism sets up, it has the same kind of um, impact that antinomianism does. Um, you know, it, um, the, while the antinomians are partying, the legalists are standing at the edges complaining. You know, both sides are stuck. So it seems me that we have to, you know, we have to recognize um, that there is a sexual addiction um, that making the old Adam an ethical standard, which is what the ELC has done, is, you know, um, you know, when it makes desire the basis of identity, which in turn sets up an entitlement, um, then you just got a real mess, you know, and there's nothing you can do but flee that. I mean, that's not going to work. Um, on the other hand, when the law is used as a solution to the problem, um, you know, um, um, you're in the, just on the other side of the same boat. So to make the proper distinction is to, rec- to be able to say this is wrong. But Christ Jesus has used for you. 
Um, and that use is in the forgiveness of sins. That is, uh, he has a promise that he's going to make to you. Um, now, in fact, um, as I've worked in the gay community myself, um, particularly when I was in Toronto, the, I mean, there's such a level of sexual self-absorption that, you know, recognizing any other um, human pursuit is a real achievement. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, I don't recommend that this word be used, um, uh, but the word faggot um, describes a continually burning coal that will not be satisfied. And that isn't when I was serving, you know, among gay people in Toronto, that was my experience of it, that um, there was a level of sexual self-pursuit that just eliminated concern for anything else. I mean, you know, and and so it's, um, and the statistics are just, you know, mind-blowing. Um, just the frequency of coupling, you know, they would, I mean, that's just, in, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, it's uh, um, sexual addiction at a level that it's hard for a straight person to imagine, you know. And and yet there there so, is there there is though uh, there there is uh, sexual addiction and and that kind of over the top, you know, sexuality run out of control also in the heterosexual world too. Oh, for Sure. You know, Absolutely. I mean, you just 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 need to to uh, hear about or go to the the twelve step groups that are in you know involved in that particular form of addiction. Oh, you know, yeah. it all pushes the same. The, uh, it's what I call the whoopee button of of the brain. You know, it's it, these are yeah. these are all ways that we uh, attempt in some way to find meaning or yeah. at least uh, dull the lack of meaning in 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 our lives yeah. and and that, but. Uh, it's it's tough because if we tie the two things together, you know, I I don't think that we so facilely say to the 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 drunkard, uh, show me evidence of your drinking or lack thereof, and I'll forgive you. But it seems like we we sometimes uh, put out the message, uh, show me that you're 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 struggling with your sexuality and you know your homosexuality, and then then we'll talk about forgiveness. But you have to kind of show that there's some some kind of yeah. struggle going on. No, it's a, I mean, it's the story of Zacchaeus, you know. I mean, I love that story. I mean, if Jesus had stood at the bottom of the tree and said to him, you tax collector, you know, you're you're exploiting your community. I mean, if he had stood at the bottom of the tree and denounced him, Zacchaeus would have never come down. I mean, he'd have stayed put. I mean, why should he come down to hear that stuff? But Jesus does something entirely different. Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm coming to your house today. I mean, he, in this case, Jesus knows that here is a man under such incredible self-condemnation and loathing that he is hiding himself deep within himself, and he's never going to come out. And so the only way, you know, since the law has already been there, Jesus speaks words of grace. I'm coming to your house today. And when he gets to the house, I mean, the miracle of all miracles happened. I mean, there's Zacchaeus up on his hind legs, repenting right in front of everybody. I mean, you can bet your bottom dollar that the minute those words come out of his mouth, he says, what in the world am I saying? <laughs> I mean, do I? I mean, he's, just, he's remorseful about being remorseful. But that's, you know, I mean, that's just a miracle. And that's, I mean, I... You know, I mean, we have to say, plain and simple to this culture, the old Adam is not an ethical standard. Your desires are, as you know, as perverse as all the rest of you. We have to get down to the basis, you know, the brass tacks of the bondage of the will and simply say, you're worth redeeming, you know. But by the same token... Um, having said that, we have to say, neither do I condemn you, and start in with, um, you know, help, helpful ways of dealing with our self that's just, you know, been carried way beyond itself, lost itself. Golly. 
you know, that's who we are. I mean, when we come to town, we don't organize rallies and, you know, have people stand up and tell how rotten they are, you know, and or how rotten they were until they found themselves. What, what, we're looking for sinners and lots of them, you know, and we can be helpful. On a gospel note, we'll call it a day on the God Whispers. My life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before. Good night, good night, until we meet again. Adios. Yeah, man, it really tied the room Were you listening to the dude's story? I was bowling. So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie. You're like a child who wanders into the Walter, middle of a movie and wants to know, Walter, what's the point? Adieu, adieu. Parting is such sweet sorrow. Over the line! I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Denny Craig. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. I'm a tea. I'll say I'm a tea totaler. Yeah. Never touch stuff, boy. He may be the Antichrist. Hey, where are the white women at? How about some make believe about musical instruments and pose? What a special friend you are.